The tri-state area will influence banking reform for cannabis. I see the governmental influence for full-blown legalization coming from, from Maryland. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. <laughs> What's up, everybody? My name is Brian Fields. Welcome back to an episode of The Dime. As with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Brandon Barksdale, co-CEO of Remedy. Brandon, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Good, man. No complaints at all. No complaints at all. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really good. Really excited to talk to Brandon, learn as much as possible about Remedy and kind of what's going on over in uh, the Maryland area. Um, and just, you know, I'm here to try to hold the West Coast down, really. That's right. That's right. So, Brandon, we've got all East Coast, West Coast battles. So, for the record, please, your location. Yeah, our location is in Baltimore, Maryland, and Columbia, Maryland. Beautiful. Another East Coaster, Kellen. <laughs> So, so Brandon, for our listeners, unfamiliar about you, can you give a little background about yourself? Yeah, so uh, Brandon Barksdale, um, I'm actually um, from Maryland originally, and my background was primarily in professional services. So I was in consulting um, prior to jumping in industry. I was uh, one of the cannabis leaders in um, a very large public accounting firm. And from there, jumped into the industry to help uh, some of my clients uh, specifically at a very tactical and operational level, um, and then expand it out from there. Um, so have a plethora of knowledge from multiple markets, from you know small to some of the larger, more prominent, um, like California, Colorado, and the newer markets that are coming online, like Arizona and Maryland, and also some international as well. Beautiful. So before we dive into Remedy and some of the values it brings to the space, let's talk kind of top level about Maryland. What is its current status today? And, and what's the positioning going looking like for the future and the coming on date? Yes. So right now, Maryland's a, a medical market. Um, it is on the way to becoming REC, targeting um, Q3, Q4 of this year. And it's a limited license market as well. And so, you know, with um, the medical licensed market, it was um, very well run. Um, you know, the limited license market is, is, you know, optimal for the economics for operators. And there were ample opportunity for people to scale and grow um, within that medical market as well. And so jumping into to recreation, it, it will be, you know, more robust of competition um, for sure. But I think with um, the the way it's set out, it's going to give a ton of people opportunity to really jump into the industry and and really um, make a, a business for themselves to make a uh, a runway for success um, if they choose to. And so I, I think the competition is always great. It makes us work harder. And you know, for me, I'm just super excited about what's to come because I think Maryland is probably one of the states where people underestimate really what the cannabis recreational market and consumer market can actually do um, just by nature of the surrounding, the surrounding employment being the, the federal government and, you know, um, very high in, uh, in public service and, and, and military. And so I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the dynamic um, as Maryland comes online with the surrounding states saying medical. Are they letting the medical operators switch to recreational? We can convert. So there'll be a, a light application and a, and a fee, but the existing uh, medical operators will be able to convert into recreation. 
we're going to be able to convert like all their brands, their stores, the whole nine yards, or it will be kind of like they still got to carry some medical products for those patients that are still in the medical program. Can you kind of describe how that conversion actually works for us? Yeah, we're still not completely through legislation yet. So um, we don't have all the details there, but the medical program will will not die off um, for sure. It'll it'll likely grow. And so, yes, the, the existing operator will likely carry medical and recreation the way it's kind of drafted and understood today. And so, you know, I think the additional licenses that will be coming online will likely primarily just be for recreation. So um, we'll see. Talk us through that, right? The complexity of not having some of those language defined today, but knowing that on July 1st, we're supposed to turn to recreational. How does your team prepare knowing that some of the information isn't been finalized yet? That's a challenge. Um, right now, <laughs> we are really moving in an agile um, state as information comes out, we're, we're adjusting. Um, but you also have to stay true to your path. Um, so we were fortunate enough to kind of have a, a very strong, you know, gut feeling based off of marketing and surveying um, that Maryland was going to be a a huge proponent for recreational cannabis from a legislative perspective, from a population perspective. And so we actually started moving to prepare for recreation a little bit early. So our stores are the largest, you know, um, stores in the state. Um, You know, we, we refer to them as super stores. But, you know, at the end of the day, with the amount of registers with the size of our vault will really be able to, you know, absorb the influx of, of traffic that we're going to get coming in recreation. And so we have been pretty headstrong on preparing for recreation, knowing that it was going to come at some point, um, just a matter of when. So with recreation coming online, there's probably going to be a huge influx of consumers, correct? And so how are you guys managing like the inventory right now? Because it's not like July 1st comes and you guys are like, okay, now we'll have a bunch of product for everyone to consume. You guys kind of have to plan all that out. So how does that that staging work? Yeah, we, we're lucky enough to have very strong uh, supply partners. And with it being a limited license market, it's not like there's an unlimited amount of cultivators out there, manufacturers out there. And because we are horizontal, we actually, you know, have great relationships with all of them. So we're not cannibalizing each other um, on a production front, which makes a freer market for us to establish partnerships and work strategically with everyone. And so we've been working on supply agreements and things that would help support us going into to recreation to to be prepared for the amount of traffic that we anticipate, which you know is probably going to be somewhere between like two to three x what we have currently, and so you know the the suppliers and cultivated manufacturers have also been preparing because prior to this bill passing, you know the medical um, the medical state of of Maryland didn't have things like canopy space, and so. With there being unlimited caps on canopy, people were really developing out their facilities to scale into recreation at some point in time. And so while we experienced a, a compression from, from, from price and also, you know, lightly some demand on the medical front for a number of economic reasons and also legislative reasons as well, we actually saw production scale down. Um, just to meet the supply demand needs of what was happening, you know, currently in Maryland. And I actually see the cultivators and manufacturers actually ramping up 
now with the space that they already have built out that's already you know ready to to go in full production um to scale into to recreation so kind of like that that curve of going up coming down and then ramping back up and so while it might not meet you know the the immediate needs of, of right when we go rec um in july it'll definitely be a very short turn after that where we should be we should be in a pretty pretty solid place and for our listeners that maybe don't understand the differences between vertical and horizontal, you reference your team as horizontal. Can you explain what that means and some of the advantages that come with just being horizontal? Yeah. So um, the vertical um, concept of, of cannabis operators is when, you know, seed through sale. So it's uh, everybody who cultivates, manufactures, and ultimately goes into to retail. And so that's the vertical model. And so the horizontal model is when you only focus on one um, operational front. So we're primarily retail. We do that extremely well. And so by us, again, focusing on just retail, we're able to be a lot more strategic as it relates to buying, as it relates to grading and quality and bringing the best products forward to our inpatients and, and soon to be recreational consumers. Let's dive into some of those qualities. How does your team make those decisions on which products to carry and which quality aspects are critical for the consumer between medical and rec? Yeah, I mean, we listen to our patients and our and our audience very closely. And we also have a very, very um, educated staff of patient advisors that also are very knowledgeable. And so with our executive team kind of having had navigated a ton of more mature markets, we actually jump into the cultivations. We look at how they actually produce. We look at manufacturing, how they produce and actually, you know, look at the end products um, and, and grade them on, on our own kind of rigorous rubric and determine, you know, what is deemed a top shelf product versus a mid shelf product versus a everyday um, bargain product. And so when we do that, what we are really also doing is educating our, our consumer, educating our patient. Um, and from them, they become more knowledgeable and require more scrutiny and value proposition of what they receive from other dispensaries that they shop there or other brands. And so you really start to see them creating the separation. And so, you know, I mean, I don't want to call it like the Pepsi challenge, but, you know, we definitely are, are, are focusing on, you know, holding our supply partners true to the level of quality and standards that we think our, our end consumers should have. So pretty committed role to be able to try the products and determine which ones have passed said, said challenge. Yes, yes. Very coveted role. Um, a lot of fun, too. <laughs> Uh, how does the communication work if from uh, your relationship perspective? Say a consumer comes in, they purchase a product, and they're like, hey, I like this about it. I didn't like that about it. How does that uh, information get uh, passed back to your guys' cultivation partners? Is that kind of a relationship you guys have actively been building? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, every everybody is different. Everybody enjoys different things about yeah. it. So it's, we don't take a, a, a one-off response as like the end-all, be-all. But in aggregate, we see a huge number of patients per day. And in recreation, we'll see, you know, again, two to three times that. And so for, for us, you know, it's that aggregated feedback. And our patient advisors here, patient advisors, a.k.a. butt tenders, 
you know, they they hear it and we have a review internally where we talk about, you know, how well product perform or why we think it didn't perform well. You know, our own uh, staff and team has experience with the products and are also weighing in. And, you know, they probably see the widest spectrum of product from bag appeal to look, feel, smell, taste, um, experience. And, you know, when you start to evaluate all those things, there's definitely some, you know, brands, there's some genetics that pull a lot further ahead than others. And in manufacturing, there's definitely some processing uh, tactics and methodologies that actually um, outpace others. And so bringing that feedback full circle to make sure the value proposition is being exchanged properly to the end consumer is really what we're you know fighting for, especially in a retail horizontal model. So Brandon, are there any differences between the medical and the recreational style products? Yeah, there, there'll definitely be the same level of medical dosage for different medical reasons and, and, and uses. And recreation will probably have a different set of parameters to, to scale with the, with the experience of a recreational user, right? And um, I think, you know, as we also see the quality evolve in Maryland, you know, there's going to be more brands, there's going to be more competition with additional licenses. And as we start to see, you know, people pheno hunt and bring different genetics and different processes from other markets into uh, Maryland. I mean, the natural evolution is that competition is going to force people to be better and really carve out the bottom performers. And so with that being said, I, I definitely see the quality increasing. It has already been increasing over the last couple of years. Um, and so I see that consistently kind of pacing forward. And I, I definitely see there being a, a huge difference, you know, going into like the first full year of rec versus where we stand today. And also with the consumers that have also had experience in other markets, also bringing that level of recreational experience and feedback back to, you know, the, the Maryland market is also going to enforce and drive performance as well. And so I think we'll see that um, display itself over, over the first couple of years of recreation. Do you think that there is potentially going to be a difference in uh, consumer preference in terms of like the products that are purchased, right? I don't know if most likely flour is the major product that's purchased in the medical market. Do you anticipate that exact kind of product skew from a consumer perspective to just mirror in the recreational market, if that makes sense? Yeah, for the most part, I imagine that it would mirror itself. And I think there might even be a, a subset of lower dosage products that are also more appealing. I mean, you'll see it in, in every market that that turns from medical to rec. You know, someone who is more leisurely approaching cannabis versus someone who's using it for medicinal purposes, you know, might not have the same reaction to the 40 milligram gummy as someone who does it leisurely, right? <laughs> yeah, so, totally. You know, with that, as as an example, I definitely see like, you know, micro dosing, I see, you know, lower um, TAC products being desirable for some. So I think that's going to open up a specific market where right now, like THC and milligram dosage is really driving what it, and terpene profile is what's driving the, the the top shelf differentiators between that and the and the and the more bargain kind of everyday excuse. 
Do you think your team bears any responsibility for the education of the consumers? For example, here in New York, there's been, um, in my social circle, there's been a larger influx of overconsumption of THC just based on the newer consumer experiencing the product and being excited, but taking maybe more than they should have. Do you anticipate that to be a problem in Maryland? And do you think your team is going to take additional steps in order to help the consumers to prevent those incidents? Yeah, I think there's going to be, there's a little bit of ownership on the, every operator, every level, right? The retailers, the manufacturers, the um, cultivators as well. And I think consumers are going to be educating each other as well. And so um, while someone who's not in an average or, or connoisseur, quote unquote, kind of cannabis user, you know, I think our butt tenders and, and slash patient advisors will be more equipped to give them entry level products versus, you know, jumping straight into the 100 proofs, um, if you want to use your <laughs> analogy. And so, you know, with that said, I, you know, I think um, experience will will showcase and tell people what works best for them. And just like any any product, I mean, it's it's the same level of like feedback, experiment, and you know, some type of control manner, and then figuring out what works best for you. And so, I think again, our team is equipped to do that level of education, being that it's point of sale. And I imagine that will probably be additional kind of educations and and drivers that help people understand like the implications of terpene profiles on the experience. And also, um, you know, TAC isn't the only driver of what quality is. And and so I think, um, you know, I, I think that'll start to showcase itself and it already has started um, to some degree. And so it's just going to be a constant mission um, to make sure that we have a, um, an op- operational um, operational market that's e- educating the uh, in consumers properly. Are there any odd rules or regulations around Maryland's adult use market where you, you can't have certain products or certain limitations on THC caps? Is there anything like that right now that you're aware of? Not right now. I mean, there are going to be allotment differences for medical versus um, recreation, just like we probably see in, in most of the other mature markets. But, you know, um, outside of that, nothing's really, you know, inked and pinned. Um, just yet. And so, you know, I, I imagine it will it'll probably fall in line with that. But I imagine that also that every SKU um, variable is going to be an option in both medical and recreation will probably just be different caps on allotment and also um, TAC and milligram between the two. Do you anticipate brands specifically targeting just the recreational market or just the medical market? And is that already occurring right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are brands that only want to be present in the recreational market and not the medical market, or they feel like the recreation market is what's needed to justify the the investment and transition into for their brand to enter the market. And so I think we're starting to see that happen as we speak. The challenging part right now is, again, limited license market is only a handful of cultivators. And so when you look at like where brands are are partnering and what they're who they're working with, I mean, you're only going to see the same, you know, cultivators on the metric tags that are associated with this. So I think once some of the additional licenses come online, I think that's also going to kind of influence, you know, additional brands kind of coming in and 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 numbers to to help, you know, drive that that brand awareness and and brand numbers on the shelf. Um, because right now it is limited. And so I think people are looking at that as an opportunity as well. 
Are there any brands that are under the radar in Maryland that most aren't aware of, but in your mind, these are the next up-and-coming brands that people should be looking for? (laughs) That's a trick question. I want to sideswipe that question um, just so we... um, just so we don't uh, cause any ruffle of feathers for me not mentioning anybody. Sure. Um, but, you know... Everyone has a favorite child. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there, there are a number that are that are coming online as we speak and that maybe have put out a couple of products, you know, just to kind of test the market. But, you know, I think some of the best are, has, has yet to come, to be quite honest. I think over the summer and into, you know, the, the latter part of the summer, latter part of this year... We're starting to see some of the stronger kind of like, you know, Colorado and California brands making their appearances in our market. And I'm extremely excited about that because I think it's really going to change the dynamic of uh, of quality, what's available and really push the envelope on what the consumers they would actually get um, in our market. And so it's going to be very, very exciting to see that. And we have very, very mature operators uh, from a cultivation and from a manufacturing perspective. And so I know they'll be able to deliver on the quality standards that, you know, people are used to in the other markets. And so it's going to be really, really good to see those start coming off the shelf and and into the the retail stores. And so with Maryland being a limited license state, will you guys be able to carry all the brands that are available because you need a license to have a brand? Is that how that works in Maryland? Or is it kind of a different set of rules if you own a brand versus if you're manufacturing? No, most people are just licensing in. and so. There is a different license for cultivation versus manufacturing, just like every other market. Yeah. And so what we'll what we'll probably start to see is like, you know, in the beginning, it'll be like a licensing play for brands to license in. And then as additional licenses coming online, depending on the success of how they do, they'll probably start, you know, building out their own facilities for manufacturing and, and um, cultivation or partnering, you know, depending on the success of whether they have are able to get licenses or not. So do you kind of look at it like your uh, organization is maybe betting on some of these brands when you're carrying them in your guys' recreational store, if that makes sense? You know what I mean? From a a long-term perspective? Yeah, unless there's some type of exclusivity arrangement in place with a cultivator in their particular retail stores. I mean, we we have the widest menu in Maryland. Again, one of the horizontal benefits. There's not many brands who don't want their product in our store. Um, There's not competition from a production perspective because we don't produce. And so it's uh it's more of a, a a fair trade and play that's happening from a from a retail perspective. So I imagine that most of the notable brands will be present in our store. Um again, unless there's some type of exclusivity arrangement for a limited time. Um but uh, it'll probably just be for that unlimited time because most brands that are coming to the state want that full blown exposure. That puts your team in a pretty interesting dynamic, being able to position some of the the top tier brands in specific placements that might be more captivating for consumers coming in, right? Obviously, in a retail environment, there's certain placements that are more highly coveted. So how did those decisions get made in order to place, you know, brand X here and brand Y there? Yeah. So, I mean, what uh, some of the relationships that we have in other markets, I mean, we have been pretty strategic in assisting and bringing brands in and helping them find partners to work with or being the the liaison or that partner for them. Um, and so, you know, it was very nice to to kind of cherry pick who we thought was, um, you know, kind of the front runners in and present the business case of Maryland to them and, and help them get in. And so, you know, some of those brands are very, very high performing in other markets. 
those are going to be coming online, um, which is super exciting. And so I know that some of the, the, the cultivators out there and manufacturers have also been doing some of the same things. And so it's, again, just really great to have a, a market that kind of flew under the radar that has generated so much attention and so much pivotal movement to be able to start to drive that brand traction into our market that was, again, formerly a limited license market. So that was one aspect of our economics that that really were challenging, the, the limited nature of what was available. And so I think brands always bring excitement. And so, again, those that brand excitement is going to be really, really exciting to see. Diving into the Nordstrom model, I've seen your team kind of compare the direct placement of the store to the Nordstrom model. Can you expand on what that really means and connect it so the consumer can better understand? Yeah. So in our stores, again, we treat them more like super stores. So they have more of like a department store type setup. And so within our within our retail operation, we have what you would call store within the stores. So the store within the stores are actually like individual pocketed square footage for different brands to present themselves to our end consumer um, patients and, and recreational consumers alike. And so what that does is really allow the, the brands with the stronger market position or with the higher quality or with the story to tell to really drive their SKU launches, their brands that they're, you know, breaking within their current operation to a platform where people are walking through to explore, you know, what should we try? Like what what brand best associates with us? And I think that exploratory experience allows people to also feel like when they come into our store that they can go to a place and understand everything that's happening within that brand. New product launches, drops, activations. Um, and really get ingrained into like what that cultivator, manufacturer, brand really has to offer. And, and a lot of times from a dispensary experience, you never really get that level of intention when you're working with a button because all the products are just laid out in front of you. And so being able to get that immersive experience within our store, within the stores, you're able to really see how the cultivator intended for their brand to be presented to the marketplace. And so that's what we were trying to, to replicate. Are the brands responsible for the activations in the real estate within your store? Or is that uh, an effort that your team handles for them? Uh, we partner. We partner in it. And so while we lay out the space and, and help the, the execution of the space, you know, we partner with them on, on what the look and feel and how they want to present that. And so it's super exciting for like brands that are coming into market that want to break that brand in a, in a strategic store because we have the flexibility of changing our entire store, you know, to a brand activation, um, which is which is very nice and unique that, you know, again, a lot of people don't get that type of stage when they're entering into a market. And so between that and our in-store ad network, which is like, um, you know, the, the digital nature of like how we present product um, within the store um, is is all super it's super valuable, right? If you if you wanted to again bring a brand into the market, you don't just want it to appear on the shelf one day. You want a presentation of that brand into the marketplace. And so, you know, just like walking past like a, a digital display on like Fifth Avenue um, of of what's new, what's current, what's hype. You know, this is this is our our take on how to make that happen within a dispensary. 
any product categories you think the average consumer right now will be very excited about once they try the product for the first time? Product categories, you mean in the recreational market? I would say rosin grade products, I think, are going to, I mean, they're, they're not really present in our, our market heavily outside of like uh, disposable carts. And so I think as people transition between distillate edibles to like rosin edibles um, and infused products, I think that's really going to be an experience um, improvement that a lot of people are going to really drive towards. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that because it, it changed the, the pace of a lot of markets when that transition happened. And a lot of it has to do with the economics behind the source material of what's available in order to get it to the to the right balance to make sense for the end consumer price point. But that's happening as we speak. And, and I think that's going to be a very great product category that's going to kind of change the face of, of preference in, in the marketplace. Do you think we'll see a crab cake edible? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. But I will say people are getting super creative right now uh, around what they're bringing to market. You know, I think we have a, a couple like consumption um, consumption licenses that are becoming available as well. And so it'll be very interesting to see how those consumption licenses come come to fruition. So I wouldn't put it past someone, um, you know, to have a uh, to have an infused butter or, or something of the sort that that enhances a, a Maryland favorite like that. So we'll see. Like an old bay infused. Oh man, <laughs> crazy. that would be crazy. <laughs> We're gonna have to cut that part and save it between us. Uh, <laughs> November eighth, Maryland and Missouri legalized cannabis, and in February, Missouri rang up a hundred million dollars in in their first month. Do you expect Maryland to top that? I expect it to be very close. Big numbers. I expect it to be very close. I mean. Again, um, a lot of the reservation when it came to, to cannabis use in, in Maryland was around people's jobs. I mean, um, Maryland houses the most government employees um, than any other state, maybe outside of like Virginia. And so, you know, people getting on record purchasing cannabis is um, a little bit of a, a scary thing, right? When it, it might impact your livelihood. And so, I think with recreation and it just being the exchange of a adult ID to be able to purchase, I think we're going to see a swarm of, of individuals. I think there was a survey that came out that said actually Maryland has the most cannabis users per capita than any other state in the in the in the country. And so I actually think we would get really close to that number, if not exceed it, um, because I think people are going to be extremely excited. Um, very densely populated, high high pasture through um, traffic from the interstate. And again, also one of the best reasons brands are trying to come into Maryland because of the desirability of Florida, the desirability of the tri-state area and the mid-Atlantic being that bridge in between. Um, so most brands that are strategically positioning in those two markets are also looking at the mid-Atlantic as a, as a point um, to, to really create uh, that brand strength and, and bridge. When you got started in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? <laughs> Um, what did I get wrong? Uh, well, let's start with what I got right. So, um, I think being, um, being nimble and being aware of what's changing in the market and not always believing everything you're doing is right. And so really being able to learn from other markets and not being so tunnel vision to, to believing that your market isn't going to have the same implications as, 
other markets because it always repeats itself. Every market that come online, economics or economics, the same type of supply and demand implications are present in both. The only changes is that the the novelty of cannabis is becoming less and less. And so, you know, as people were excited about it, now they can go to half the country and be able to do the exact same thing. So that process is actually speeding up. And so, you know, while it may have taken, you know, a market like Colorado seven to 10 years to see the implications, like the newer markets that are coming online are going to see those implications within two to three years, um, if not even faster. And so being able to adjust and 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 follow the, the the cannabis rush and get ahead of history repeating itself, I think is is a, is definitely a strength and something that um, I got right. <laughs> something that I got wrong, I would say, is trying to reverse the overall economics of what the implications are, right? And and I think it showcases itself and in different ways, in different facets. And you have to be aware of what's happening and change your model to adjust to what's happening. Trying to go against the grain is is a very huge uphill battle. And unless you're extremely large with an unlimited source of, of, of capital, and, <laughs> and which is not the case in today's capital markets, it's, um, it's just very, very challenging. And so I would say um, those are probably the two uh, tent poles if I had to, you know, give myself a thumbs up, thumbs down of, of what went right, what went wrong. If you could sum up your experience and a main takeaway, a lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? You know, I would say just chase what you love. You know, like, I mean, you have to be passionate about the things you do day in, day out. And so, you know, I think if you can tie industry of any type into the things that you love to do on a regular basis, you know, I think you'll end up being the most fulfilled, no matter how that turns up. And so, or turns out. And so for me, I think being able to, you know, take the structure corporate experience that had been a majority of my career and, and tie it into the lack of maturity that the cannabis market had at the time that I entered it has been nothing but, I would say, a, a benefit to the overall industry of, of what to expect, what to look for, um, and, and what's going to be required. Right. As we start getting more institutional money and more structured capital flowing in, the expectations of how you perform and and what's valuable, what's not, what are key metrics, what aren't, uh, are going to be increasing more and more. And so, you know, you have to be structured, you have to be organized in order to um, execute those things properly. And so that would be what. You know, I would say is, is probably the biggest takeaway is just just do what you love and, and, and follow the story. Don't go against the grain. Uh, do what works for you. Follow your own opportunities. Don't try to repeat someone else's success. I think those, those are the keys. Well said. All right. Prediction time. Brandon, Maryland is surrounded by several states that have already legalized cannabis in some form or in the process of doing so. Given its location, how do you see the market unfolding five years from now? I see Maryland being the front runner in recreational legalization for our market. Um, DC being, Washington DC being a, uh, not being a state and kind of 
following its own gray market and, and moving more towards in uh, a structured um, a structured uh, cannabis economy there um, will, will also add some level of, of intricacy of how that Im- impacts um, Maryland. You know, our surrounding states of like Virginia, Pennsylvania, Delaware, West Virginia, we'll start seeing some of those states come online um, in no particular order. Um, I don't I don't know, you know, which ones it'll happen first. It's, it's definitely interesting because, you know, we we hear talks of like, you know, Kentucky, Kentucky and Texas and, you know, all the states that I thought were actually going to be further and further down the line are actually starting, <laughs> you know, kind of pick up momentum. and so. You know, I don't know exactly in what order it'll it'll all happen in, but um, when those states start to to come online, I, I think we'll start to see the the focus of that cannabis buying power kind of spread out, um, and then it'll be again the the same implications that happen in other markets when other states surrounding a, a key strategic kind of cannabis market start to come online. We'll start to see the implications of, of that spending, again, just spread out and it'll be the front runners of who are the best operators, who's the most successful, a limited license market helps. So that way it doesn't become a complete, you know, wild, wild west of, of cannabis operators. But, you know, there's still implications where, you know, I think the strongest will survive and 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 some will, you know, have to have to fold. And so, you know, that I, I see that probably being the the closest thing to the next, you know, Four to five years, um, and not to make this too long-winded, I think the implications of the federal government being again the number one employer for our for our area, and the formality of security clearances and drug tests and things of that nature, I think it'll also start to push the envelope nationally of, of what reform needs to happen um, as it relates to to banking, national legalization, even if it's still run and operated by states. Uh, I think we'll, we'll start to see a, a much stronger you know, change and push in, in the direction of, of what are what are we really waiting for? Um, and so, you know, at the end of that, you know, timeline you gave me, I, I think we'll probably start to see very strong movement and momentum in, in, in that direction as well. Well said. Kellen? I think in five years, and this is a bold statement, but I think that you'll see federal legalization and I think you'll be able to point to Maryland for all the reasons that Brandon just mentioned in terms of like, it really helps from a cultural stigma perspective, breaking that when say someone who's made, maybe never tried cannabis, they, they're working the federal government, they have significant influence there. Right. And they see cannabis become normalized and they see it's not as bad as the propaganda kind of made it out to be the last 50 years. And I think that those tiny changes are what really causes the the larger cascading cultural change, if you will. And so I do think you'll be able to point to Maryland in five years and be like, the way that they handled the rec- their uh, bringing the recreational market online, how they they manage that whole operation, I think will have cascading effects for federal legalization of some sort. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement here. I, I think given its location and the type of influence it has with governmental workers and the fact that they didn't want to be involved in the medical program for obviously those reasons, like we said about being on the record, I, I think when the market turns on, people are going to be shocked by the type of numbers they do. And if Missouri's doing 100, I'm expecting Maryland to beat that from a competitive standpoint. Uh, also, I think that it helps, like we were saying, that other states around it have turned on because a lot of the consumer aspects now, they've been to California, they've been to Colorado, they've tried other products. So maybe they they were a little more hesitant to be kind of curious now, but now 
that they're ready and things are turning on, they might be more adapt going into the store and trying the products because the stigma continues to be loosened up. And uh, my expectation is that Maryland will be a, a massive market and one that exactly like you both said, we'll look to and be very excited about going forward. And also, I mean, the interstate traffic that flows on, you know, through 95 down in Florida around the holidays and back up, you know, I think, um, you know, just thinking about the Memorial Days, the 4th of July, the the summer traffic of that interstate commerce, you know, same way I think, you know, I think the tri-state area will influence banking reform for cannabis. I see the governmental influence for full-blown legalization coming from, from Maryland. And I just think that the exposure to cannabis, you know, just like just like what was said, is, is going to be what what really drives some of that change. So I'm super excited. Um, it, it's great to be a part of that story. Um, and, and I think we will, you know, continue to see that 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 movement and and in July is going to be a huge, huge game changer when we when we see what it what it actually uh what it actually comes out to be. Absolutely. So Brandon, for our listeners, they want to get in touch and they want to visit Remedy, where can they find you? Yeah, um, you can reach me on Instagram. Um, we have uh remedy underscore Maryland for our, our Instagram account. Um my personally is uh um just Barksdale, J-U-S-T-B-A-R-K-S-D-A-L-E. Um, and again, we're um, in Columbia off Stanford Boulevard and we're in Baltimore off Security Boulevard. Two huge 10,000 square foot stores. We're ready to serve. So just really excited to uh, to really be able to tackle the, the recreational market when it comes online. And, uh, and of course, like we'll, we'll always be there for our medical patients as well. So awesome. We'll link it up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was fun. Awesome. Thanks, bud. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.